Welcome to The Pie. I'm your host, Tess Vigland. Today, we're looking back at some of the economic research we've featured on the show throughout 2023. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. To end the year, we're taking a look back at some of the episodes we've brought you over the last 12 months. But before we get to that, I wanted you to hear from some of the people who helped bring you this show, the team behind the pie. And to do that, I asked them to share with us something we've been asking guests to do since about the middle of the year. Here with the podcast team from the Becker Friedman Institute, starting with a helping hand from five-year-old Bailey Hernandez. My daddy name is Eric Hernandez. He is the Senior Officer of Digital Media. And his favorite pie is apple. What is your favorite pie? My favorite pie is apple, my daddy. I'm Ava Gomez, and I'm the Marketing and Digital Media Coordinator at the Becker Friedman Institute, and my favorite pie is key lime pie. My name is Abby Hiller. I'm an economics writer at BFI, and my favorite pie is Lebanese meat pie. Hello, and thanks for listening to The Pie. I'm Dave Fettig, Head of Policy and Communications for the Becker Friedman Institute, and my favorite pie is lemon meringue. I'm Maya Rabinold. I'm the Senior Multimedia Associate at BFI, and my favorite pie is pumpkin, but with just as much whipped cream as pie. And I'm Tess Vigland. As I mentioned earlier, I host the show, and my favorite pie is a chicken pot pie. One of the first economic studies we featured early in the year had to do with subject matter you might not normally associate with, well, economics. But that's what makes the dismal science so interesting. It touches everything, including a question about why a species of giant birds experienced a mass die-off in India and how that caused an increase in the death rate for humans. Here's part of my conversation with environment economist A.L. Frank of the Harris School of Public Policy. 't the role of the vulture before we hear about kind of what happened to it why is the vulture important vultures are a great example of what ecologists consider to be a keystone species which more colloquially you you can think of as species that hold the ecosystem together a more rigorous definition might be they have a really big role in the ecosystem much bigger than their relative population might reflect. And if we lose them, if we take out that piece of the puzzle, we end up potentially suffering a really big degradation in the ecosystem functioning. And vultures are as important to qualify to be a keystone species 
because they have evolved along evolutionary timelines to be really good at what they do, which is scavenging, meaning removing dead animals from the environment. And why specifically look at vultures in India? Well, specifically in India for two key reasons. One is that there were a lot of them all throughout the country. And India has a massive livestock population, over 500 million animals, larger than we think any other country, at least that we know of. And in that country, we also have these social norms that are really important about how to handle meat. So Hindus won't consume cows and Muslims won't consume meat that was not slaughtered according to halal. So there's this big sector of livestock agriculture. There are these cultural components about how to handle dead animals. And you need vultures to clean up after dead animals because there's no other infrastructure in place to do so. That was kind of like the first reason. The second reasons why to look at vultures in India is that they unfortunately went from 30 to 50 million birds to just a few thousands, if not a few hundreds left in the wild in just a few short years. Okay, so uh, let's talk about what started happening in the late 1990s, which is what ecologists would call a catastrophic collapse in the vulture species there. Why did it happen? In the 70s, we introduced a painkiller with the active ingredient by the name of diclofenac, and you can administer it to your livestock animals. And it was safe for livestock It animals. was safe, and it, exactly, it worked great. And the problem started when the livestock died, was put in what are many, many livestock animal landfills that are placed at the outskirts of a village or a city, where farmers bring the dead animals and just leave them for the vultures to come down and clean up the mess, even a small amount of residue in the carcass would mean kidney failure and certain death within weeks for vultures. Then all of these knock-on effects ultimately make their way up the chain to humans, most likely in the water supply, but also lots of other issues. And you go on to estimate how many additional deaths were likely caused by vulture collapse. What was that? We estimate that the increase in all-cause mortality leads to about 100,000 additional deaths a year relative to the population in our main sample. When we use a specific value of statistical life, or we find that this translates to mortality damages close to $70 billion per year. So in economic terms, the collapse of this species is a $70 billion problem? Exactly. You could argue that this was the year of AI, and of course, Taylor Swift. But with the explosion of generative AI, specifically the product known as ChatGPT, we entered a new era in computing. And some of the most interesting aspects of AI came from how it could be used in various facets of life and in corporate America. We spoke with Maximilian Moon, an assistant professor of accounting at the Booth School of Business, and PhD student Alex Kim, who had looked at what generative AI might mean for corporate disclosures. 
of all the things you could have asked ChatGPT to do, uh, you asked it to basically summarize corporate disclosures. Um, first, for those who may not be familiar, explain what those disclosures are, and then why that? Sure. Public firms in the U.S. are required to publicly file these 10K reports, annual reports or quarterly reports, the 10Qs. And they also do voluntarily conference calls, basically every quarter. The earnings call. Yeah, earnings calls, essentially, where they discuss with analysts and so on how the last quarter went. And these conference calls and these 10Ks, they have a lot of new information in it, especially the conference calls, because they reveal how the last quarter went, um, why it went in a certain way, and so on. And there has been like a lot of literature, at least in the last like 10 years or so, that basically say that these corporate disclosures get more complicated, more and more complex, longer and longer. It takes longer for the market to react to it because it's so hard to get basically um, yeah, decipher them in a way. And so we use these two pieces of disclosure and basically yeah, ran them through ChatGPT because we noticed that it's incredibly well in summarizing um, these pieces of information more, more broadly. But then we also realized it's actually pretty good also in terms of summarizing these corporate disclosures. And they're really, you kind of touched on this, but there has been a movement in the last few years to make these statements, these disclosures easier to read using plain English and you know, not even just written documents, but as you mentioned, the earnings conference calls. Regulators have been asking for this even, right? Yeah, the SEC essentially has long been concerned about this issue. So they had this plain English initiative where it was mostly about, yeah, that it should be written in more understandable language. Okay, so Alex, walk me through what you fed to chat GP2. What I did with the corporate texts was just giving the corporate texts to the chat GPT and explicitly, explicitly say in the prompt not to refer to the outside information. So we concatenated or aggregated the summaries of each chunk and then generated an entire summary for each corporate disclosure. And then you compared those results from ChatGPT to what? The, the, the summary that you already input to it? No, no. Basically, um, our primary test uh, is about like whether the summaries provided by ChatGPT can better explain the stock market movements. Yes, what investors try to clean from these disclosures or from these conference calls is essentially the tone. So is it positive news? Is it negative news? And yeah, as Alex mentioned, what we essentially did is we, we looked at the tone of these summarized documents relative to the original documents. And we saw, especially for these uh, written disclosures, like a striking difference in their ability to explain contemporaneous stock market returns. So talk about what the equation is here. What, what exactly are you measuring? I assume it's not as simple as, you know, comparing how many words are in the company's summary versus how many are in ChatGPT. So what, what are you measuring? No, that's that's actually exactly what we're Is that doing. it, right? That's, that's <laughs> okay. the idea of the bloat measure. But that's what's actually so cool about this measure. Yeah, it's essentially that. So you, the, this algorithm is optimized for providing summaries. So basically, we take the length of the summary compared to the original document. And we find that basically the reduction in the length is pretty 
uh, powerful in terms of explaining like information asymmetry and so on in the market. But yeah, that's why we love the measure. It's so simple. It's so intuitive. Yeah. It's so easy to implement. Just to add on, it is actually maximizing the signal to noise ratio or like informativeness of the uh, textual information. So basically, uh, what we get from the GPT um, is a document that maximizes the informativeness compared to its length. Yeah, signal to noise. That that to me is key because so many of these documents contain a lot of noise. Exactly. That is why um, the blot measure is like actually 20% of the original length. Wow. So basically it is saying like we can just take away like 80% of the original document and then maintain only 20% and then it can actually better explain the stock markets. Student loans made headlines several times this past year. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled in a case involving federal student loan forgiveness. And students nationwide had to resume payments that have been on pause since the start of the pandemic. We talked with Michael Dinnerstein, an assistant professor of economics in the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics, and Constantine Yanellis, an associate professor of finance at the Booth School of Business. Here's part of my conversation with them about what the pause did for borrowers' finances and what the government could learn from it. Uh, Let's give a quick refresher here. Michael, what did the federal government do for student loan borrowers at the start of the pandemic? So if we can remember back to March 2020, it was a complicated time and things were changing fast. And so the federal federal government did a a variety of things. But as part of the CARES Act, which was passed uh, quickly in March 2020, the federal government suspended its collection of payments on student debt. So basically, if you had uh, loans that you took out uh, to finance your education from the federal government, then Uh, Usually, you were used to making payments every month, and the government basically suspended your need to make those payments. So, Constantine, uh, take us back to those those early times, uh, the before times, uh, March of 2020. Um, What were the economic arguments in favor of the student loan moratorium? Um, uh, You know, this policy we study initially was set to last three months. Now it's lasted more than three years. But the basic thinking was that if we have a transitory shock, stopping debt payments uh, or providing uh, other short-term liquidity could be much cheaper than policies like stimulus checks or unemployment insurance. Essentially, what you're doing is trading government uh, debt for individual debt. All right. So then, Michael, describe for us what you set out to find here. Was it as simple as the question, you know, did the moratorium work? Did it help students? Or was it something a bit broader? More broadly, we're trying to look at what happened. And then after that, kind of interpret, does that seem to help or hurt people? Um, And so a lot of the arguments, well, the arguments for the policy could be divided into stimulate the economy, as we just talked about, or potentially shore up people's financial situations so they don't default on obligation debt that they already have. Um, So we were curious first whether any effects are coming through the first channel, which is kind of spending more, versus the second channel, which is more shoring up your own financial situation. So then, Michael, what did borrowers do with that money when they didn't have to pay down their loans? Did they spend it? Did they save it? Did they pay down other debt? What? Yes. So first, we see, as predicted, with their student debt, 
many of them no longer pay once they're not required to. And uh, they don't go delinquent kind of by definition because the government's not saying you have to pay. And their credit scores go up. All that sounds pretty great. Yeah, right. How they act based on that is we see instead of them paying down other debt, like a mortgage or an auto loan, we see them actually take out more debt. So we see increases in their balances on their mortgage or on auto loans, as well as on credit cards. And so these in total add up to a fairly large increase in the amount of debt that they have that's not student debt. What do you glean from the fact that borrowers started borrowing more because they weren't having to pay student loans? We had two hypotheses. So the first one was that, well, you now actually have more ability to borrow because your credit scores just went up. They paused the payments and now more banks are willing to lend to you at least relative to the group of people who did not get the payment pause. And so perhaps there's some loans that you didn't previously qualify for that you do. The second hypothesis is that, no, you've always had the ability to take out those loans, but now you just decide to do more of that. We find it's the latter story. And even that story is a little complicated. Why would you, with more money in your pocket, because you're not having to pay for the student loans, take out more debt? Well, it could be that you make a down payment and all of a sudden you have the ability to do that because you have this extra money you're not paying your student debt with. Or it could be I have a few like the first or second monthly payments are going to be pretty big. And so now I know I can cover them. So we think that this, we call it liquidity, but this extra cash that you have might make you more able to use the credit that you kind of had access to throughout. And finally, as we wrap up a look back at some of our 2023 episodes, we looked earlier this year at what happened when the government changed the rules on who could receive supplemental Social Security income, specifically young Americans with disabilities. Did the removal of welfare benefits put them on the path toward work, or did it do the opposite? Here's part of my conversation with Manasi Deshpande, an assistant professor in economics in the Kenneth C. Griffin Department of Economics. I think it's fair to say that uh, questions around welfare have been some of the thorniest of the last several decades of political history, right? And in some circles, uh, welfare is a handout to people who aren't willing to work. In other circles, it's a, it's a helping hand to those who need it. So I'd like you to take us back briefly to a landmark piece of legislation, uh, the 1996 Welfare Reform Act signed by President Clinton. What did this act do? Most people remember the 1996 welfare reform law for what it did to the traditional cash welfare program in the United States, which was at the time AFDC, Aid to Families with Dependent Children, and then was later turned, as a result of that legislation, turned into the TANF block grant program. But a lesser known provision in the 1996 welfare reform law was that it changed rules for supplemental security income eligibility, specifically for children and young adults. And explain what SSI is. Yeah, so SSI is a cash welfare program that provides cash income and Medicaid eligibility to to low-income children and adults who have disabilities. Okay, so what was the change? So the change was, one of the changes to SSI was that Children who received SSI benefits, so these are children who have a disability and whose parents have low income and assets, 
these children, when they reached the age of 18, had to be reevaluated for SSI under the adult criteria. Why did you choose to look at, at children for this research, young adults? There has been quite a bit of controversy about the SSI children's program. A lot of the controversy has come from children with these kinds of behavioral conditions qualifying for, these, for this program. Should children with uh, mental and behavioral conditions be eligible for a cash welfare program, essentially? And in particular, is it discouraging educational achievement? What happens when they reach the age of 18? These are all questions that have been either speculated about or there's been some anecdotal evidence uh, about, but very little good empirical evidence about the effects of this program on children and young adults. And so I wanted to fill that gap. Walk us through what you found in terms of involvement in the criminal justice system after losing these SSI benefits and the types of crime that landed this population in jail. Yes. So, you know, just thinking about, you know, kind of basic economic theory, what would that predict when someone loses a, a pretty large amount of income? So we're talking something like $8,000, $10,000 a year. Based on this kind of large income loss, you might expect one of two outcomes. One is that these young people might work in the formal labor market more than they otherwise would have in order to recover the income that's been lost. Uh, and the second is that they might pursue income essentially outside of the formal sector, right? And so, you know, the first thing that we can look at is, is formal employment. So we do see some kind of modest increases in formal employment among young people who were removed from the SSI program as a result of this policy change. But after we did that, we then were able to merge criminal records from about 20 states uh, to the social security record. And what was striking to us is that we saw huge increases in criminal justice involvement. And by most of the measures we can define, larger increases in criminal justice involvement than increases in formal employment. And so more young people were responding by engaging in this kind of illicit income-generating activity than were responding by working in the formal labor market. So what then is the cost-benefit analysis here for society? The headline conclusion from our cost-benefit analysis is essentially that the U.S. taxpayer broke even on this investment, if you want to call it that, of removing young people from SSI. That on the one hand, taxpayers did save money by not paying these SSI benefits uh, to these young people. But on the other hand, the increase in criminal justice involvement, and in particular in incarceration, was so large, and incarceration in the United States is so expensive, that the cost of policing and incarceration basically wipe out all of the savings to taxpayers from not having paid those SSI benefits. And that's it for our wrap-up of the year 2023. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics and part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. 
Have you ever wondered what goes on inside a black hole? Or why time only moves in one direction? Or what is really so weird about quantum mechanics? Well, you should listen to Why This Universe. On this podcast, you'll hear about the strangest, most interesting ideas in physics, broken down by physicists Dan Hooper and Shama Waxman. If you want to learn more about our universe from the quantum to the cosmic, you won't want to miss Why This Universe, part of the University of Chicago Podcast Network. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI Communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we wish you a very happy new year.